This is a special preview of a series on Sci-Fi Talk Plus on Mars. As a subscriber, you can listen to it commercial-free and uncut. This is Mars the Series, Chapter 2, Living on Mars. And this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. Author Stephen Patronek on how we will live on Mars, and editor of Breakthrough Technology Alert, talks about living on Mars and food supply. Initially, when you have maybe up to 100 people on Mars, um, you'll need some kind of supply chain from Earth. Um, but almost immediately, um, you have to start relying on everything you can find on Mars to live on Mars, because it just costs too much to bring it from Earth, and you can only get it there once every two years, when the two planets are aligned in the right place. So, um, and NASA has very much, NASA is very good at keeping people alive in hostile environments, and they have very much taken on this concept just a couple of years ago that everything we do on Mars to keep people alive on Mars we have to find on Mars. Uh, the only exception to that will probably be food. We'll probably ship somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of uh, the colonists' food from Earth to Mars for probably maybe even up to 100 years before, because you have to warm the planet and be and terraform it and be able to actually plant crops outdoors instead of in greenhouses before you can really become sustainable from a food point of view. What about the supply chain? Stephen Patronek. There, there probably will be a lot of unmanned supply ships uh, going back and forth, or going back. They will be reusable, and they will be going back and forth. They will be refueled on Mars with fuel that is made on Mars to to send them back. But by and large, from almost from the get-go, what you have on Mars is what you get from Mars. There's more of my preview of Mars series, Chapter Two: Living on Mars, in a moment. You can catch the entire series complete and uncut without commercial interruption at Sci-Fi Talk Plus. Click on the link in the show notes for a free lifetime subscription offer. Yes, it's free without no obligations. Dr. Michelle Perchonik, who has been the advanced system lead at NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, since September of 2000. Her responsibilities include space food product development, menu definition, nutritional requirements implementation, food processing, and food packaging development for the long duration and exploratory missions. She also integrates NASA-funded external research with internal research at Johnson Space Center. We spoke at a Nat Geo luncheon for the TV series Mars, attended by Ron Howard, who executive produced the series. Here's our conversation. Right off the bat, from your presentation, the digital printer making flavors. Well, you would send up the flavors, and then you would infuse them into the paste or whatever and into food, yeah. That sounds like the uh, the food processor on Star Trek, for God's sake. It's as close as we'll probably get, yeah. If we go to Mars, does it, it sounds to me we're going to have to change the way we eat. Um, not the way we eat, but the way we um, obtain the food. You know, we're still going to eat, hopefully, a diet that seems familiar to us or to them. Um, you know, well-rounded, nutritious, but it will come a different way. And we're going to start off with processed foods or... Like, yes. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a known entity. 
Um, we don't know how 3H gravity is going to work for heating food, mixing food, um, all that. So until we know that, I don't think we'd want to depend on it. Is there a lot of research being done right now in foods for space travel, not only to Mars, but maybe beyond? There is a an arm of NASA that's doing food science research. Is it large? Probably not. Not, I, I don't think so, but um, there's certainly people doing that work. I mean, we have been doing that work for probably over 20 years. What's, uh, what's the biggest advancement you've seen? It's hard to say. I think, um, you know, we've been concentrating, on, or they've been concentrating on the packaged food system. And there's some new technologies out there that hopefully will give us the, give them the shelf life that they need. Um, but NASA doesn't do the advancement because it's easier for them to get the experts to go do it themselves, and then NASA just uses it. When do you think we would actually make the first trip? Right now, I think they're saying 2039, um, which probably means the 2040s. I mean, you gave us a timeline during the talk, and um, so we're talking probably about 10 years after that, when everything is set up where it has its own food system in, in place. Yeah, probably about then. I, you know, it's hard to tell. Depends on how much research has been done on the Earth. As far as the Martian soil, do we know much about it? Is it... Is it conducive to growing things, or will we have to bring some with us? So I think what I've heard, and I'm not an expert, that the soil will not allow people to grow food there. But the plan is to grow it hydroponically in water, on, uh, in growth chambers, because then you can just pass the nutrients through the water. Why would you want soil that you have to bring up and launch when you can do it as well in hydroponically? And I think... They, the um, agronomists have figured out even carrots, where you think they'd need the ground, are growing eh, not quite straight, but, but mangled a little bit, but still good enough to do it hydroponically. And lastly, there's, you know, there's first, uh, first Man, The Martian, Interstellar. There's been a lot of great space movies, and I haven't seen as much interest since the 60s, frankly, yeah, when exactly. I was with the Apollo yeah, program. Yeah. So why is it now that we're coming back to that? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I don't know. Um, except I think maybe people like Andy Ware that wrote The Martian think it's time to start thinking in that, in that future realm. Um, and I think they probably all feed on one another. So because there was Interstellar, because there was The Martian, because there was, Ma you know, they're all happening. Um, but I don't know. It's a good question. I, I hope we get that that um, excitement about NASA back that we had during the Apollo era because we're missing out. And our young people, what a way to influence them and get them excited about science, but to do it about space. Yeah, we need science has been yeah. long neglected. and yeah, exactly. And how exciting it is and how, you know, um, it's just inspiring. What blows me away is digital printers making flavors. Amazing. But why not make food, too? But living on Mars has other natural elements. As Andy Weir talked about, the Martian dust storms. 
Mars actually does have huge dust storms, mainly because um, the dust that it's kicking up is very, very fine. It's like talcum powder kind of level of fine. And so it does get these what are called tau events, which are um, so much dust is kicked up, the sunlight can't reach the surface. In fact, one of those is going on right now. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so curiosity is kind of in the dark a little bit, and opportunity is, you know, might not survive and, and so on. So, um, but the idea of a storm on Mars being able to come through like a hurricane on Earth, completely fictional. And I knew that when I was writing The Martian, but I didn't care. I wanted I, I wanted a, a, a cause, and I, I, it was a human versus nature story, and I wanted nature to get the first punch. Stephen Patronek talks about building on Mars. You're going to build things entirely differently on Mars. You're not going to build anything like these um, recording devices here that are obviously have some kind of obsolescence. From the get-go, when you start manufacturing something on Mars, you're going to think it through as to what its lifetime is, and you probably try to maximize its lifetime. And then when its lifetime is over, what are you going to do with it? Because you're going to have to recycle everything on Mars 100% because it's just too costly not to do that. It won't be a garbage, you can't use, you can't use the atmosphere as your garbage disposal device and you can't use the planet as your garbage disposal device like we do on Earth. So uh, everything is gonna be much more precious and worth much more. Recycling human bodies. Here's Stephen Patronick. Energy is not a significant problem on Mars, um, and humans have 60,000 years of burial rituals, and um, those are not going to be undone very easily, even in an environment like Mars, where whether or not you bury a body or, or even preserve a body and definitely on Mars so that you could uh, at some point take it back to Earth or whatever, as opposed to, for example, incinerating it, really isn't going to matter that much. And in fact, burial might be scientifically the smartest thing to do. Well, because if, 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 you, were, if you were to incinerate the body, for example, what do you do with the, all the exhaust gas? Are you going to release it into the atmosphere? That's a pollutant. Um, it's not a wise idea. So um, Mars is so cold that you, it, it is literally like you know the um, what we imagine Walt Disney is someplace you know per, 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 perpetually frozen somewhere. Um, you know the the and you're not going to run out of space for that on Mars either. You can catch the entire series complete and uncut without commercial interruption at Sci-Fi Talk Plus. Click on the link in the show notes for a free lifetime subscription offer. Yes, it's free without no obligations. And this is Tony Tolado. Thanks for listening.